Thank you, brother. Well, church, good morning, guys. Grace and peace to you all. Please turn with me to Paul's letter to the Galatians. Paul's letter to the Galatians will be in chapter 2 this morning, and we'll only be looking at verses 15 and 16. Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 to 16. And if you're taking notes this morning, the title of my sermon is Two Kinds of Righteousness. Two Kinds of Righteousness. And once you find your places in Galatians 2, 15 to 16, please stand with me for the public reading of Scripture as we hear the Word of God in reverence. Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 to 16, the title, Two Kinds of Righteousness. I'll be reading from the ESV as well. This is the Word of God, God's words of life to you this morning. Starting here in Galatians 2, 15. Paul the Apostle writes, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This is the word of God. Let's go before him in prayer. Lord, it is a gift, it is a blessing to be able to gather with my brothers and sisters this morning, Lord, to sing songs of praise to you and to gather together to hear your words of life um, for our life today, Lord. God, we are gathered together by our common faith in Jesus, and we know that this is something that we did not earn, this is something that we can never work for, but something that we have received, received freely as a gift. And God, we thank you for that, Lord, and we look forward to hearing what you have to tell us about it today. But Lord, just it's, it's heavy on my heart, Lord, as I'm sure it is on everyone else's, just Lord, just... Our church is going through a lot right now. People are sick. People are going through financial turmoil, Lord. Um, people are just going through something, Lord, whether it be physical or spiritual, Lord. And God, I question if it is something that is spiritual. And I wouldn't put it past that because it's too much of a coincidence to not happen all at the same time. And so, Lord, I just share that, Lord, because, God, my heart goes out for my brothers and sisters. And yet, Lord, even though we live in a time of darkness, we've always lived in darkness, Lord, in this folk, broken and fallen world. And yet the goodness of the gospel was that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning was the Word, and all things were made through Him. And the beautiful thing about this reality, Lord, is that this Word is life. This Word is life, and that life was the light of man, of mankind, and that light shines in the darkness, and that darkness hasn't overcome it. Lord, Darkness may be in the lives of my brothers and sisters today because we live in a broken and fallen world. And yet the good news of the gospel is that darkness shall not have the last word. Why? Because it was in the beginning was the word. And so, Lord, I just pray that your word today that will be proclaimed will give life to my brothers and sisters. It will freshen them up, Lord, to find hope and encouragement in your word, Lord. And that God, as they walk away from these doors, they are enlivened. They are reinvigorated to go throughout their week despite the trials, despite the tribulations, that, Lord, they will go and rest in your name. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the good news, for the hope of the gospel that we have in you, Jesus, and that, Lord, we long for the day to come. But until then, Lord, speak to us this morning, your words of life. We pray that for those who do not know you today, we're thankful that they're here, um, that they are welcome visitors. We pray that they will come in and encounter with the words of the living God, your word, Lord, and that, God, they will come to faith in you. And for myself, Lord, that, Lord, I will not mess it up in any way, but that, Lord, it will be your word going to your people. 
I am just your mouthpiece. I am just a man. Lord, use me, Lord, just to, 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 to deliver your word to your people this morning. And Lord, again, we thank you and we just lift up all these things in Jesus and we pray. Amen. Maybe seated, church. One of the most beautiful examples of mercy, of grace, found in all of literature is Victor Hugo's classic novel, Les Miserables. Taking place in 19th century France, the story unfolds by introducing the protagonist, the main character, Jean Valjean. He's released from being in prison for 19 years, a long time. His crime? For stealing a mouthful of bread to support his family. So now on parole, Valjean attempts to find lodging. Yet no one is willing to help him as an ex-convict. Then Valjean stumbles upon a bishop's house. Instead of turning, turning him away, the bishop shows him mercy. He shows him grace. Not only does he welcome Valjean into his house, but he gives him food to eat and he gives him a bed to rest. But, this, but despite receiving such kindness, Valjean steals some of the bishop's silverware overnight and flees. And yet the next morning, the local police capture Valjean and bring him back to return the bishop's silver. However, the bishop says to them that he gave it to him as a gift. Surprised, the police release him. But then the bishop says to Valjean, do not forget. Never forget that you have made a promise to use this money in becoming an honest man. Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil, but to good. It is your soul that I buy from you. I withdraw it from black thought and the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. And if you read the rest of that 1,000-page book, it's long. The rest of the story just shows how Valjean keeps his promise, all because one faithful bishop showed him mercy. Now, such a story is powerful especially if you've seen that scene in recent movie adaptations or the Broadway musical. Such a story is powerful because this actually touches on something that we all experience in the human experience. We all realize that we are like Valjean. There are times in our lives that we need mercy, do we not? Not only from our neighbors saying when we do wrong to them, but ultimately from the one whom we have all offended, the creator God of the Bible. And I know that humanity we all know that humanity lives as if God does not exist. And yet we all also know that deep down in our heart of hearts that he does exist. The fact that we know that we ought to act in a certain way logically points back to him as the absolute standard of reality. But we also know that we fail to do that daily. Why? Because we have robbed God of his glory to live as gods ourselves following our own hearts, our own selfish desires, our own sinful desires, instead of finding in the rest in the one who can only satisfy them alone. As a result, humanity deserves nothing but this eternal punishment, eternal punishment and death and hell, and yet God in his mercy, he has provided a way for we glory robbers to be forgiven. As John 3.16 says, we all have this memorized, most of us, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but what? Have eternal life. Awesome. Y'all you, you know it. The creator God, he has made a way for humanity to be, to be restored back to him. It's only through the God-man. It's only through his son, Jesus, who added humanity to himself that redeems a people from all the nations to be back to him in peace. And yet, that begs the question, 
Why does the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ matter? Why does the gospel matter? And not only that, but how is it that sinners like you and me can find such mercy in him alone and find peace in him alone? How is it really that a sinner can be forgiven for their cosmic treason against the holy God of the Bible? And the good news is, the Apostle Paul provides an answer to these questions this morning. So therefore, the main point of Galatians 2, 15-16 is that a person is saved by faith in Christ alone. A person is saved by faith in Christ alone. But how? How does that work? How is that possible? And Paul, for us this morning, he's going to compare two kinds of righteousness, two ways how you could be saved. The first is the active righteousness of works, the active righteousness of works. And I'm going to explain these terms as we go on. And the second type of righteousness is the passive righteousness of faith, the passive righteousness of faith. These are the two kinds of righteousness Paul is going to discuss this morning, the active righteousness of works and the passive righteousness of faith. And yet, before we can jump into our text this morning, I just need to give some context, just to kind of give some clarity on what Paul is getting at here in Galatians. Because if you read the letter overall, Paul is just teaching, quite simply, how to live out the gospel. That's what Galatians is all about. How do we live out the gospel? And he's writing this to churches at a place called Galatia, or today would be in Turkey. But why is he doing that? Why is he writing to the Galatians about this topic? Well, because... You had some Jewish Christians. They were saying that these Gentile Christians, that is just non-Jews ethnically, they need to be Jewish to be saved. In other words, they need to do good works of the law to earn, to, to, to work for favor with God. As Paul kind of says in Galatians 1, 6-7, this is in the beginning of the letter, this is the problem that Paul is trying to address. He says here that, I am astonished, Galatians. I am shocked that you are so quickly deserting him who calls you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. That's the problem here, and Paul is writing to address it. And all this really culminates in the previous passage, if you look in your Bibles, where Paul confronts the apostle Peter to his face. And if you look at that passage in that scene, you see, what's, you see this, is go, this is what's going on. Peter, he's enjoying fellowship with Gentile Christians at a church called Antioch. This is north of Israel. And really, the church of Antioch was the first multi-ethnic congregation. That is, there were Jews and Gentiles, Asians, Blacks, Africans, Middle Easterns, all these Romans. All these people were at this one church. Why? Because they were united by their common faith in Jesus Christ. And just to kind of give a side note, I might, I'm going to return to this idea as we go throughout the sermon. But one reason that makes the gospel of Christ so beautiful is that it transcends culture. You can't say that about any other religion. It's the gospel of Jesus that transcends not only human culture, but unites a people from all the nations as one family in Jesus. That's kind of what we see in Antioch, and that is the vision that God tells us how the biblical story will end. However, if you read that story closely, you're going to see that certain Jews from Jerusalem, they came to Antioch, and once Peter realized this, he begins to backpedal. What do I mean by that? Well, he begins to separate himself from the Gentiles. He's like, oh, I'm not going to hang out with these guys anymore. Why? Because he's afraid of the Jews, because like... Because they would have been asking Peter, like, Peter, why are you hanging out with the Gentiles? You're not supposed to do that. They are not Jewish like us. And as a result, 
Peter withholds from fellowshipping with, the, um, with these people at Antioch. And Paul hears about this, and that's why Paul's like, he goes up to Peter's face. He rebukes him. Paul or Peter, you are a hypocrite. And this is, where, this is why then Paul asks Peter the question in Galatians 2.14. If you look there in your Bibles, he says, Peter, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how then can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And that question is a problem because Peter's behavior here, it is contradicting the truth of the gospel. Gentiles do not need to be Jewish to be saved. They don't need to keep the law to be saved because whether you are a Jew or whether you're a Greek, no one is saved by works of the law. No matter how well you may perform in life, it will never be enough to receive a verdict that leads to peace in life. Instead, you can only experience such peace, especially before God ultimately, by faith in Christ alone because it is his performance on the cross that is enough. And Paul, again, will prove his point in the text this morning. And so let's turn to that first kind of righteousness again that really can't save anyone. It's the act of righteousness of works. The act of righteousness of works. And so look at Galatians 2.15. Paul writes this. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And so the text this morning is Paul's response to Peter during that confrontation in Antioch. And there's one thing I do need to say, because it is a problem, it's unclear when Paul's response to Peter ends and when his response to the Galatian problem begins in that passage in Galatians 2, 15 to 21. What do I mean by that? Well, Paul brings up the situation, right, that Peter, he, there was this problem in Antioch, and yet we got to remember, why is Paul writing Galatians in the first place? Because he had these Jewish Christians deceiving the Galatians with a false gospel. So this passage is tricky because we don't know when that response to Peter ends or begins and when does kind of Paul get back in track in the letter. Either way, both issues deal with the same problem. Jews and Gentiles are not saved by works of the law. Instead, as I'll be emphasizing today, you'll be hearing it a lot, but Everyone is saved by their faith in Christ alone. And so look closely with me at that first part of verse 15. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth. Here, Paul is simply referring to every Christian, including himself, who is born a Jew. And if that kind of seems odd while he would be doing that, if you look historically at the early church, where did the church begin? In Jerusalem, right, on the day of Pentecost. This is something that Pastor Josh will preach, Lord willing, next week. And the reason why that's a big deal, because the first followers of Jesus, they were primarily Jews. And so it makes sense that he'll be saying this, because as he's writing this letter to the Galatians, it is very early in the church's history. And yet, what's interesting about this is that he's ultimately bringing this up because he's trying to make a distinction. He's making a distinction that, yeah, we were Jews by birth, we believe in Jesus as, as the Messiah, as the Savior of the world, but we are now Gentile sinners by birth. Why does he even bring that up? Seems very irrelevant, especially for us today as Christians. Why is Paul making such a contrast between Jews and Gentiles in, verse, in the first place? Well, first, socially, something to keep in mind, there was a barrier between Jews and Gentiles in this time in history, in the first century. In other words, Jews and Gentiles, they just did not get along. You can say there's hatred, maybe some racism between these two people groups. And the reason being is that Gentiles, why they're called sinners, is that they did not receive the law of God like the Jews. And if you know the Old Testament, we know that God made that special covenant, that special relationship with Israel, and they received God's law. It was more direct compared to the Gentiles 
They never received it. And, we're, and, and, and the idea of the law, right, it refers to everything that God commands in his word. And so this is why that Paul is making the distinction that, yeah, we Jews, we receive the law, but we're not those Gentiles because they didn't receive the law as well. And yet, even by me mentioning that, it's not that the Jews are not sinners and, and the Gentiles are like, oh, those people are the, are the worst people imaginable. No, Paul is trying to make a point here. He's trying to make a point that, yeah, we're distinct from the Gentiles, but at the end of the day, we're not so different. Yes, the Jews are the people of God, and they will forever be the people of God. And I long for the day when Christ will come to bring Israel back to, to himself in its fullness. However, the Jews are not so different to the Gentiles regarding their predicament spiritually. What do I mean by that? Well, for one, the Gentiles, they never received the law. And yet, they are not ignorant of God's natural law in creation. In other words, they know of God's law and their conscience. And when you think about this, every single human, part of the human experience that we can all relate to is that we know that there's such thing as a right and wrong, ultimately. Not only is this consistent throughout all human cultures, but even all throughout human history. And if you're actually to do a study, something that's very interesting, C.S. Lewis, that British writer, he actually makes this point in one of his works called The Abolition of Man. He actually, at the end of the book, gives a list of all the various different cultures about what they view about murder, relationships, marriage, honesty. He gives a list of all these different cultures from Indian texts, from Native American, Babylonian, Egyptian, Middle Eastern, Jewish, all these different things. And you know what? And if you read that, you know what you find? There's some differences culturally. But morally, there are more similarities than differences. And what he's trying to get at and what he ultimately proves is that the reason why we're all able to kind of know that there is a right and wrong across cultures, across history, because morality itself is objective. It's not subjective what we think it is personally. I know our culture thinks that, but it's wrong. No, morality is absolute because ultimately it stems in the one who is absolute, and that is God. And this is something that the Bible tells us. As it says in Romans 2, 14 and 16, Paul writes concerning the Gentiles that when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse even them on that day, when according to Paul's gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And so the Gentiles, they know of God's existence. Their conscience condemns them. They know they ought to behave a certain way, but they fail to do so. That is true for the Gentiles, but that is true of the Jews who fail to keep God's law perfectly as well. And what Paul is getting at in this passage particularly is that at the end, at the end of it, when everything is said and done, the creator God is going to judge all of humanity, both Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles will be judged without the law of Moses because they never received it. They won't be held accountable to something they never received. But in contrast, the Jews will be judged by the law of Moses, for they received it as God's people. And yet, the Gentiles will not be condemned to eternal punishment in hell for never receiving God's law, nor will the Jews be granted eternal life for receiving it. Instead, both Jew and Gentile, all of humanity, will be judged on whether or not we perfectly obeyed God by living for him. And yet, what's the human condition? What is our predicament? Paul says in Romans 3.9, what then? Are we Jews better off than the Gentiles? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Now what does that mean, to be under sin? 
Well, as Paul says early in Romans 1.25, he says that humanity has exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This is not just a Gentile problem. This is a human problem. We were created to live for God, to glorify him, to enjoy everything in this world as an expression of worship to him because he alone satisfies our greatest desires in this life. And yet, what do we do? We would rather worship the gift rather than the gift giver himself. And as a result, God will judge everyone whether or not they have obeyed him. All of humanity has failed to live for him because no one is perfect. No, not one. No one seeks for God. No one does good. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And as a result, the wages of such sinning against God is eternal death. Again, we know that we ought to behave in a certain way, but we fail to do so daily. And that alone, loved ones, is why we, that not only does God exist, but ultimately why we deserve nothing but God's eternal wrath. It's a human problem, not just a Gentile problem. That's, Paul, that's what, what Paul is trying to get at here as he's talking to Peter in this, in, this, in this situation. And yet, even when I bring that up, right, this is actually another reason why the gospel is so attractive. Why is it so beautiful? Because it's not exclusive to who could be saved. Because people say all the time, man, Christians, you guys are so intolerant, you guys are so narrow-minded. It's like, no. Yeah, I agree with you. We are exclusive because Christ is the only way. And yet it's the most inclusive religion because it's the only religion that is good news for people from all the nations. Whether you are Jew or Gentile, it's good news to all people. Regardless of your ethnicity, only you can be saved if you believe in Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior by faith alone. And just to kind of prove that point, just so I'm not just saying it out of my back pocket, consider this statistic by the Pew Research Center and just really think about what this is getting at. The Pew Research Center records that Christianity is the largest and most diverse belief system in the world, with roughly equal numbers of Christians in Europe, North America, South America, and Africa, and with a rapidly growing church in China that is expected to outgrow the church in America by 2030. So those are just castings, demographics, not sure if it's going to happen, but think about that. Think about that. Just consider all the brokenness in the world right now, all the different wars, all the different turmoil, not only right now, but throughout human history, and yet there is a message out there that unites people from all different cultures, from all different natures and backgrounds. There's something that actually brings people together, not only right now, but people throughout human history, and it will continue to do so until that message, does, until that message does, um, completes what it came to do, the gospel. Only again does Christianity promise that. You can't say that about Islam. You have to be a Muslim to do that. And, and, and even if you disagree, you might lose your head in the process if, if you go against Islam. You can't even see that about Judaism. Because again, you would have to be Jewish culturally in order to kind of embrace their message. It's only the gospel of Christ that presents this unity of diversity. Only the gospel brings all people from the nations together as one family in Christ. As Paul will say later in Galatians, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, he says that there is neither Jew or Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one, in a salvific sense, in Christ Jesus. This is the gospel that has the power to save people, not only to the Jews first, but also to the Gentiles. Jews are not better than Gentiles, ultimately, in a salvific sense, because all people are in need of a Savior 
people must be born again. That's why Paul says that, yeah, the Jews are distinct from Gentiles, but no one can keep the law by their good works. No one can be saved by their good works. But that then begs the question, why ultimately? We know that we're sinners. We know that we fall short. But why is Paul so adamant in making this point? And this is where I want us to look at the next verse. I want us to look at verse 16, and there's so much path in this verse. That's why I'm only preaching a sermon on two verses. But look at the first part of verse 16 in Galatians chapter 2. Look how Paul begins to actually give us a reason why no one could be saved by their own efforts, why they need Jesus. He begins by writing that we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul says that these Jewish Christians themselves, they know that a person is justified not by works of the law. Instead, Jews and also Gentiles, all of humanity, are justified through their faith in Jesus Christ alone. And yet, to really understand what Paul is getting at here, there is one word we really need to kind of dig deep to understand. It's, it's the most repeated word in this text. It's that word, justified. Now, I, I know most of us have probably heard of that word, but for some who don't know what it is, like, John, what does that word mean? Justified. And what I can say is that this idea of the word justified is actually at the heart of what Paul is getting at Galatians. And I would even argue is that because this, this idea comes so often throughout his letters, this word is actually at the heart of Paul's theology overall. And so, what does it mean to be justified? Well, throughout Paul's letters, it generally means this, to declare someone righteous. To declare someone righteous. In other words, to declare someone right um, before someone else. And I say that in contrast with great emphasis to what Roman Catholics typically say. Notice how they define justification. To make someone righteous. You notice that subtle difference? You're like, John, it's just semantics. Who cares, right? It makes all the world of a difference. And if you know your history, you know it definitely makes all the difference. Because to say to make someone righteous, they're basically saying that, yes, God saves you, but he enables you so that you can do good works so that you can find your favor with God. You're trying to earn your salvation. That's what they fundamentally teach with that word. And that's why the Protestant reformers hundreds of years ago was like, no, that is not at the heart of the gospel. And not only that, but that's not even what Paul is getting at. Because when you look at Paul's usage of this word justification, he always utilizes it in the sense of to be, to, to be declared right with someone else. But why is that such a big deal? Because of this. Because Paul always uses this word justification in a legal forensic sense. Now I know, what, now I know that everyone knows exactly what I mean by that. No, it's difficult, right? I'm going to explain this with an illustration. But that's what Paul is getting at here. Justification in the sense of legal forensic justification. What does that mean? What does he mean by that? Well, let me give an illustration. Imagine you're watching a court of law, whether it be Judge Judy or something. I'm not sure what you do on your days off. But imagine you're watching a court of law. You see the scenario. We all know what what happens, right? You have the judge up here. You have the defendant. And you have the lawyer, um, you know, just like, hey, this guy is guilty. This guy um, needs to be punished a long time. And so imagine you have the defendant. And he is racked in debt. Embezzlement, he, he has a debt that he cannot pay. It is impossible. And so the judge says, like, you are guilty. You can't pay this debt. And no matter what that guy do, he can't make himself right before the judge. He can't pay off the debt himself. And yet, what happens? Imagine in the back room, doors bust wide open. You have this guy comes down the, comes down the hallway. 
judge is like, what are you doing? You're interrupting you know, the, the, the service. And the guy says, I have enough money to pay for that guy's debt. I will pay for it in full. And so the judge is like, all right, cool. He looks at the defendant and he says, no longer are you guilty. Your debts have been, have been paid. I declare you righteous. That's kind of what Paul is getting at with this word justification. And just to kind of help better illustrate that, I'm just going to consider this parable of Jesus. He makes a similar point in one of his famous parables of the tax collector and the Pharisee. You find this in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14, but this is to kind of build upon that court of law illustration. Look at what Jesus says here. He writes, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, that they can make themselves righteous and treated others with contempt. Here's the parable Jesus gives. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man, that is the tax collector, he went down to his house justified rather than the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Again, notice who was making that declaration. Although the Pharisee was like, man, I'm so, I'm so righteous, I'm so holy, look at me. And yet Jesus says, no, it is the man who went down, it is the tax collector who asked for forgiveness. He went down to his house justified. Why? Because that declaration did not come from man, it came from God. The Pharisee believed that he is made righteous by his own good works by his own performance. He believes himself to be justified by being a good person, keeping the law, all that. In other words, he believes that he is saved by his own active righteousness before God. And yet, it's the tax collector. He is declared right before God. It is the tax collector who is ultimately justified. It is the tax collector who God shows mercy to. Why? Because the tax collector realizes that his good works his performance in life, and all that he does and tries to achieve cannot save him. It will never be enough. They are filthy as dirty rags. He is merely a sinner before the hands of the holy God. And so instead of boasting about his own good deeds, he humbles himself in repentance before God. This is what Paul is getting at when he says that a person is not justified by works in the law here in verse 16. No one is saved by their act of righteousness, doing something for themselves in keeping God's law. It doesn't mean that God's law isn't good. God's law is indeed good because it reflects his own perfect nature. Again, that's how we know that there's more absolutes because God's a standard of goodness. Everything good corresponds to his perfect nature. Everything against it is sinful, and we know why that is wrong. However, the point of the law is never for a Jew or any person to keep it perfectly. Instead, its primary purpose is to showcase really that we can't keep it, that we are wicked, the depravity of the human heart. And despite the cultural assumption that people are born supposedly good, the Bible says otherwise, and if we're honest, our personal experiences from what people do to us, what we do to other people, and just all the, the, um, just the evil that has come, up, come upon throughout human history. It's who we are as fallen sinners. 
That's why depending upon your own good deeds or basing your entire hopes in life on your performance, it is not only foolish, but impossible. Consider what Paul will say later in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. He says, All who rely on good works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, and he quotes from Deuteronomy 27, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. In other words, what Paul is getting at here is that God's standard is perfection. It is 100%. It's not good enough to say, well, I'm not as bad as Hitler. I'm not as bad as Stalin or Mao Zedong. No, no one is able to keep law gods perfectly because God himself is the standard. And as a result, those who are of works of the law, you will be ultimately cursed. If you depend upon your own performance in life and how you do well in your job and what kind of relations that you have, if you depend upon those things in themselves, you will be cursed and only receive eternal condemnation because there is nothing that we can do. There is nothing that you and I can earn or do in life that will ultimately make us right before God. There's nothing actively that we can do that will make us right before God in the sense of justification. Now that begs the question, because that is the human predicament. We all experience that. How was one justified before God then? If no one can do it themselves, how is one declared right before God? And if you look again at verse 16, loved ones, what does Paul write? You are only justified, declared right, through faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, a person is only saved, declared righteous before God, by their faith in Christ alone. And I'm going to break down how does this work exactly. Because it's one thing to say that, but like, John, how does, that, how does all those pieces work together? But I do need to address a, a, a concern here. Because I know people will bring this up, especially in our culture. Because when I say that you're only saved by faith in Christ alone, many people in the culture, and maybe some of you today, would be like, well, John, isn't that kind of intolerant to say that Christ is the only way to salvation? Isn't that kind of arrogant to try to convince others that this is absolutely true? And I do believe this is absolutely true, but isn't that intolerant? That's how our culture views this. They, they believe that the exclusivity of Christ regarding salvation, that is very arrogant. And just keeping that in mind, if there's anyone here today, I do not want to condemn you for you thinking that. It will lead to death eternally, but I want to take that objection very seriously. And this is something that we all must do, loved ones, I believe. Because if we're going to have a missionary encounter with our culture, with our city, we got to take questions like this very seriously. We can't just say, oh, the Bible says that Christ is the only way. Suck it up, buttercup, and if not, you're going to go to hell, right? That is not good enough. Instead, we must take that question seriously and any of the other questions that people may bring to this Bible. Yeah, they may be hard. Yeah, some of them might be, um, you know, atheistic snobs like, oh, like, can God make a rock bigger that he can't carry it? They're not really serious in asking that, right? But sometimes other people are like, John, how could, you know, how can Christ be the only way to salvation? Say, say that person came from an Islamic background, like, my family is earnest in their faith. You're telling me that because we believe in what Allah says in the Quran, that I'm not going to go to heaven? Exactly. And so these objections, we must take them very seriously. We must listen to them, 
And we must give them a good answer from the Bible to help them wrestle with their doubts, to not only show, show them that Christianity is true, that there's reasons to back it up, but indeed it is true because it is the most beautiful message of all time. And so how should I, how should I respond to this objection, that Christ is the only way to salvation, and the fact that some people might say that's very intolerant? Well, I just want to highlight this point. If anyone here thinks that way, just really think about what people, what you mean when you say that. When you say that I'm exclusive for saying that Christ is the only way to salvation, really listen to yourself. And I'm not trying to be a punk here. I'm just, just no, just listen to yourself. Because what are you ultimately saying? I'm exclusive for believing that Christ is the only way to salvation? Are you not exclusive for telling me that Christ is the only way to salvation? Because you're excluding me of my belief. What makes your belief greater than mine? The very same statement that people when, when people say that very same statement, they, when they critique it, they're doing the exact same thing themselves in the process. Consider what the late American pastor Tim Keller writes about this. It's very helpful. He says, It is no more narrow to claim that one religion is right than to claim that one way to think about all religions, namely that all of them are equal, all of them have paths to God, are true. And then he says, We are all exclusive in our beliefs, but in different ways. And that's the point. When, when, when you raise that objection, what you don't realize at first is that you're being exclusive as well. And so it's not a matter of like, oh, John the Christian is exclusive and the secular person, I'm the inclusive person, the intolerant person. No, we're all exclusive. The, 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 the big question we got to be asking ourselves, which exclusivity is true? Who has the better story? Who has the greater story? Because every other religion... Every, every other philosophy, every worldview out there in some way, shape, or form depends upon some sort of act of righteousness to have wholeness in life, to have salvation, or to live the good life. Every worldview religion out there says that you need to, you need to perform to earn that ultimate verdict. But with Christianity, it's different. Christianity is an exception because Christianity is the only worldview out there that says it's not based on your performance that gets you the verdict. You can't even earn it. Instead, it's the only verdict that you can receive, and it's not based on your performance. It's based on someone else's. And just to kind of help give, you, give another analogy to kind of help, to help make sense of this, think about a mountain with me. If you want to envision these mountains over here, they're very beautiful. Think about those mountains. Every religion, philosophy, and worldview will say that there's a God on top of this mountain and humanity on the bottom. How do, how do, how, how do man come to God? Well, every religion, worldly philosophy says that that God on top of the mountain has sent a prophet or a teacher to represent that God, goes down the mountain um, and says to humanity, hey guys, this is, this is the way how we get to back to God. Here's some instructions. This is what you need to do. If you're able to do that, then you can ascend this mountain. Then you can flourish in life. Then you can have salvation. Then you can have wholeness. That's basically every religion out there in a nutshell, except Christianity. What makes Christianity so different? And this is how. Imagine you have the same mountain. You have God on top and humanity on the bottom. Instead of God just sending a prophet or a teacher to the people, God descends the mountain himself. He adds humanity into himself. He descends the mountain. And you know what he tells humanity? I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you want to ascend this mountain of the Lord, you must come through me. That is the difference between Christianity and every other worldview out there. And so, how is a person justified? Through faith in Christ alone. 
is only through Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And he is the way of how you can only flourish in this life, but ultimately, all the desires in your heart, all the restless desires in your heart that you just want, you know, relationships, identity, community, all these different needs that we have as human beings, only the God of the Bible can satisfy these things. And again, it's only through Jesus himself. But that then leads me to another question. How exactly does justification work? It's one thing to know that, all right, it's, it's not by me doing anything. I've got to believe in Jesus by faith alone. And John, you're saying that I'm declared right. How does it actually work? And this leads to the second kind of righteousness that Paul does mention. And it's this righteousness that can save, that only has the power to save alone. And so it's the passive righteousness of faith. I've been talking about the active righteousness of works. Now we're going to finish with the passive righteousness of faith. Look at the rest of Galatians 1.16 where Paul starts saying, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And so Paul has been showing that no one can be saved by active works of the law. That's why he says here that he himself, alongside other Jewish Christians that were part of Paul, they believe in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Why? Well, again, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And what's kind of interesting here is that Paul is actually alluding back to the Old Testament. He's actually alluding back to a passage in the book of Psalms, particularly in Psalm 143, verse 2. The psalmist writes there that, Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. And what that psalmist is getting at is that when it comes to a man who tries to approach God, no one living before God, no one is righteous. No one is good. No one is holy enough to go to God based on their own effort. Kind of think about that mountain analogy. God's on top in holiness. No man can ascend the mountain of the Lord by their own strength. And so what Paul is arguing then is that simply, again, no one is righteous before God. No one can be saved by their active good works of the law. Not by your performance, not by anything that you may do yourself. Because all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Instead, a person whether you are Jew, whether you are Gentile, whether you're black, white, whatever, you are justified by faith in Christ alone. And I actually want to break this down. Like, how does that actually work? How does justification actually work? And it is my prayer, loved ones, that this will be not just the Christian doctrine that gives you assurance in your salvation, but I'm arguing that this is the Christian doctrine that can only bring you assurance in your salvation as Christians. And when I first came, when I first realized this, oh man, it's like, the, it's like the gates of heaven opened up and just the refreshment that came down from it, it is truly incredible. And so, how does justification work? And this is me talking to the believer. What does it mean for a believer to be declared right by faith in Christ? Well, first, let's summarize. It is impossible for a person to be saved by their active righteousness of works. And I'm going to be very specific with, with my word usage here. You cannot be saved by your active righteousness of good works. It's not to say that Christians are not called to do good works. It is actually what authenticates our faith as believers in Christ Jesus. As James chapter 2 says, faith apart from works is dead. Again, we're not saved by works, but it's the works that we do as a result of our salvation that is what authenticates that we do truly believe in Christ as Lord and Savior. However, you condemn yourself, though. 
You condemn yourself if you trust in your active righteousness of good works for salvation. It's like, hey, I give this much money to the poor. I, I'm, I'm this such such person with my family, with, with my coworkers. If you depend upon what you do at the end of the day actively, that's why it's active righteousness, then you are condemning yourself in the long run. Instead, you're only declared right in this sense. And I'm going to be pulling from a term from what many of us probably have heard of him. He's a German theologian, same as Martin Luther. He says that you're, only, you're not saved by active righteousness, what you do actively. Instead, you're only saved by what he calls passive righteousness. In other words, you're declared right before God, not based on what you do actively in life, your performance. Instead, you are declared right before, you're, you're declared right before God by faith in Christ. Passive righteousness. And the reason why Luther calls it passive righteousness is that you don't do anything to save yourself. You can't do anything to save yourself. As Jonathan Edwards would say, the only thing that you do, um, that, that you add to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. So we can't save ourselves. But what, the, but what Luther's getting at is that if we can't save ourselves, how can we be saved? Faith in Christ alone. It is Christ's performance on the cross. That is not only enough, but that is the, the one thing that we need to be saved. And it's passive because we didn't do anything to earn for it. We only receive it as a gift by faith in Christ and what he has done on the cross. The reason a believer then is justified by faith is because of the perfect work on the cross. It was his performance that is enough. That is how you are justified loved ones. And how is this good news for those who may not profess faith in Christ? Well, think about this. Look at the world around you. We know that we don't live in, a, in paradise. <laughs> we live in a world that's broken. And I can tell you this, it wasn't always like that. When, when the creator God made everything, he made it originally good because he is the standard of goodness. He made everything from the farthest galaxy all the way to the smallest molecule. He made everything in his creation and it was very good. And you want to know what the pinnacle of that was? You, my friend. Humanity, made in God's image, made to worship him and to love him forever. And yet what happened? Humanity was tempted, Adam and Eve, instead of trusting in what God says is good, they trusted in their own standard of goodness. Eve says that she looked at the fruit that was good to her own eyes, instead of trusting in God's standard of goodness, she ate, gave some to her husband, they ate, and then boom, sin and death have entered the world and we have been experiencing the consequences ever since. And as a result, you may not believe in God, but I can tell you, you experience the effects of the fall. Why? Because of that brokenness. And you do all that you can to alleviate that brokenness. Whether it be trying to find that best relationship, that best job, that best vacation, things in themselves that are good, but when you elevate them to, to try to ultimately satisfy your heart, they become idols. They are sin. They become your gods because you're worshiping yourself as God rather than the God who made you to worship him. And as a result, the consequence of such sinning is death. That's why we die, but ultimately, you will be eternally damned in hell. doesn't mean God's unloving. just means that because he is goodness, he must do what is right, and he judges sinners like you and me who have rebelled against him in hell forevermore. That's the bad news. And yet, there's good news. And the goodness of the gospel is this, is that God has made a way for you and I to be saved. He has made a way that you and I can experience salvation, and it happened in this way, that 2,000 years ago, God entered, entered creation. He added humanity to himself. He lived a perfect life, ultimately to die on the cross, the most oppressed man in all of the history of the universe. He died under the hands of the Roman Empire, was crucified on the cross, and died 
was buried, and three days later, rose again from the grave, conquering sin and death. And that's good news for you. And as Christians, we understand this good news, and it's good just to kind of rehearse this in our minds. It's because we deserve nothing but death. But what happened? God so loved you that while you were still a sinner, he died for you on the cross. He died the punishment that you and I deserved by dying as a perfect substitute in our place so that if you believe in him by faith alone, that he is who he says he is, that he isn't a liar, that he isn't a lunatic, that he wasn't just a mere legend, but that he is the Lord, you will be saved. You repent of your sins. You believe in Christ Jesus by faith alone, no longer living as if you were the Lord of your life. No, you put that to death and you live to Christ. No longer are you walking in darkness. Now you're living in the light because God has said in the beginning was the word. And what did the word do? He added humanity to himself, died on the cross so that if you believe in him, you will be saved. This is the good news of the gospel. Amen. Amen. And we can never forget this, loved ones. And this is how it works if you're still wondering. When Christ died on that cross, people call this the great exchange. All your sins that you ever done and that causes you to be guilty before God, that is placed into Christ's account the moment you first believed. And all the perfect righteousness that Christ has done as the perfect God, man, he places it into your account as a sinner. Christ dies in your place on the cross, pays your debt in full, so that when the Father looks upon you, you are righteous. Not because of your performance in life, but because of what my son Jesus has done for you on the cross. That is liberating. No longer do we have to feel the pressure in life so that, oh, I, I need to do this in life. I, I need to get that job. I, I need to marry this person. None of that matters unless you have Jesus Christ. Not saying that those things are good, but they can never bring you ultimate happiness. They can never bring you satisfaction, joy. They can never cause rest to come upon your heart than what Christ has done for you on the cross. That is the beauty of justification. That is at the heart of the goodness of the gospel. And the beautiful thing is, no longer are you an enemy of God. But because you're justified by faith in Christ alone, you're so much more. You are adopted into God's family as a precious son, as a precious daughter, and, can, and that can never be taken away from you. No matter how difficult this life may be, loved ones, the hope of the gospel is that you have a life to come. No matter how broken this world may be, we long for the world to come. This world is passing away. We long for the world to come in glory that we no longer have to look forward to, to seeing Christ by faith because we only know him by faith now, but there will be a day when you see him face to face in glory. And we long for that day and we live in light of that day so that we can be faithful now wherever we're at, loved ones, whether it be in your jobs, your families, in your relationships, it is by living in light of the end that you can live now faithfully in the present for the age to come. This is what gives the Christian purpose. This is what gives rest to your hearts that is so restless all the time because apart from Christ, nothing in this world can satisfy. That's the goodness of the gospel. And if you do not believe in him, I exhort you, my friend, believe in him as Lord and Savior, repent of your sins, and follow him the rest of the days of your life. Ain't going to be an easy journey. The cost of discipleship demands that you must deny yourself to the point of even denying your own life. And if you look at the history of Christian, Christian history, um, quite a lot of Christians have died in the name of Christ. And so it ain't easy, but it's the only path that leads to eternal life. And so I exhort you, if you have not believed in Christ as Lord and Savior, I call you, believe in him by faith alone. As Paul would say in Galatians chapter 3, verse 11, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law for, and it quotes Habakkuk 2, 4, the righteous shall live by faith. Therefore, loved ones, how do we apply all this to our lives? Specifically, 
specifically. And there's one application I want you all to take away from our text this morning. As Christians, you must rest in your justification for the assurance of your salvation and not your sanctification. You must rest in your justification for the assurance of your salvation and not your sanctification. What do I mean by that? Let me present another story, and I'm going to put myself under the bus here. The Lord's been working on my heart personally, and I'm being very transparent, but I don't care. I'm a man. <laughs> um, the, just, the Lord's been working on me it's with some of my struggles regarding just overthinking, just being so concerned about my current allotment in life, like the, the things that I don't have or things that are to come, just that, those different things, right? Anxiety, I think stuff that we all kind of struggle with to some extent. But then the Lord, the moment I realized this, it hit me like, like a ton of bricks, and it's the fact that I was so overwhelmed. I was so anxious by looking at all the different things in my life, things that are happening, things that are not there, just different things, right, in life. I think we all could, could relate to this. But I looked at it, it's like, you know what the problem is? I have been looking at my walk as a Christian, my life as an individual, or in other words, my sanctification, I have been looking through it through my own subjective eyes instead of what God says objectively, because what God says, no, John, you're, you're declared right. You are a believer. You are a child of the living God. And the moment I realized that, I'm like, oh my goodness, because I preach all the time against the problem of our cultures, that people want to be true to themselves, follow their heart, just, just, just live out according to the feelings. And yet that's exactly what I was doing in that moment. I was so overwhelmed by my thoughts that I was looking at my situation like, wow, I'm looking at it from my own subjective, finite perspective, and I did not, and I was not looking at it through the perspective of Christ by looking upon Christ himself, because I was looking upon myself ultimately. I'm not sure if any of that made sense, but that hit me like a ton of bricks when I realized that, and, I, and, and, and that's when I remembered the valley, like, it's my justification. It is who I am in Christ. It's not my performance and how I live the Christian life. Granted, we're called to grow more like Christ each and every single day. That's the beauty of the Christian walk. Sanctification is, is, is this becoming more like Christ, and that's a journey. That's a journey that we begun the moment you first believed, and it will end when we go to him in glory. But the assurance of how I'm even able to live my life is based again on the cross. It is based again on what Christ has done for me, for all of you if you believe, based on not what I have done to earn it, but based on what Christ has done Allow me to receive it as a good gift as unto him. And so my exhortation to you, loved ones, is that if, that if that sounds like any of you today, put it off, repent of it, and replace it with the promise of what God has done for you on the cross. And something that I've been doing recently, too, is just really taking time to rehearse the gospel, to meditate on key certain truths of the gospel. This is one practical way that you can rest in your justification and not for, for the assurance of your salvation and not sanctification, how many of you actually take time just to reflect upon the gospel? Thank God for your salvation. I know at times I lacked at that. That's why I've been doing a lot more, and it's been so liberating. Just because the gospel is not just something that we first believe in. We're like, oh, cool, I believe in the gospel. Level one, now I've got to ascend to level two, reform theology. Then, then step number three, Trinitarian doctrine. That, that's great and all, but the thing that undergirds all that is the gospel, it is salvation. And I, and, and I can promise you that the more you just rest in the gospel itself, not only is it going to deepen your understanding of what happened there on, on Golgotha all those years ago, but it's only going to increase your thanksgiving to God, your contentment in him, ultimately giving rest to your soul in Christ, 
but it's going to increase your effectiveness because you're not so bogged down by what I don't have or what I have or just the brokenness of this world, but it will give you that heavenly perspective to live for Jesus and all that you do, waiting for the everlasting kingdom to come. And just one thing I've been wrestling in personally, just to give another example of how do we actually meditate in the gospel, I've just been resting in Christ's righteousness. Lord, I thank you that I have salvation in you and I rest in that. I invite you to do the same thing as well. As Jonathan Edwards, that famous American intellectual, once says, he says that in all of your course, walk with God and follow Christ as a little, poor, helpless child, taking hold of Christ's hand, keeping your eye on the marks of the wounds of his hands inside, whence came the blood that cleanses you from sin, and hiding your nakedness under the skirt of the white, shining robes of his righteousness. He wrote that to a young convert, an 18 year old who just came to the faith. That is something we can do right now, loved ones, to remember the gospel, to remember Christ, so that we may live in confidence of not what we have done to earn the salvation, because we can't, but what Christ has done for us on the cross. Now, even by me saying all that, right, this does not give you an excuse to sin. The Christian life, again, is one of dying to self and living for Christ. If I may quote the theme verse of Galatians, Galatians 2.20 says this, that Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh that is in this world, you want to know how he lives by there? If you memorize that passage, not by his performance, not by his good deeds, but by faith. And faith in the Son of God who loved him and gave himself for him. This is the heart of what it means to be a Christian. We're saved by denying ourselves, denying our wants, living for Jesus. And as we live life, as we long the day for his return, We live by faith. Why? Because again, Christ loved you by giving himself for you on the cross. You're saved by paths of righteousness, loved ones. You're saved by what Christ has done for you, not by your own good works. But that's not to say that your good works don't matter. We were saved for good works, Paul says, right? We were saved to show good works, but who needs them at the end of the day? We know that God doesn't need them because we're only saved by Christ's perfect work on the cross. But you want to know who does need them? Luther, Martin Luther says this, and this is a phenomenal insight. He says that, again, God doesn't need your good works. But you know who does? Your neighbor. Your neighbor needs your good work. God doesn't need them because you can't be saved by them. But instead, how do you glorify God? By doing good works toward your neighbor, loving them, treating them as fellow image bearers. Because at the end of the day, we are going to help them to either reach one or two destinations. How we treat our neighbor, we're either going to lead them to go to hell one day because we're a jerk to them, which is not cool, or because of our love towards them, showing the love of Christ, taking seriously their physical needs, but ultimately getting to their greatest needs spiritually to know Jesus, we love them in that way. Who knows? God might use you to help, help that person to experience the weight of glory that can only be um, received by believing in Christ Jesus alone. And so again, loved ones, rest in your justification Rest in your justification in Christ and do not rest in your incomplete sanctification. God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. Therefore, love your neighbor because it only shows that you love God, that you have experienced the gospel. And so, therefore, in light of all this, a person is saved by faith in Christ alone. It's not by act of righteousness of good works. It's only by the path of righteousness you receive when you believe in Christ's name by faith alone. Not only will you receive God's mercy and grace, but you are now able to live for him. So allow Christ, allow him to live in you so that you may love God and your neighbor as well. Only then will you be able to show mercy to others, kind of like the bishop earlier um, as we started this morning, right? 
Only will you be able to show mercy to others through your good works as Christ first did it to you through his perfect work on the cross. And I'll just close off with this sentence. It's when we do these loved ones that we rest in our justification, remember the gospel, allowing us to empower us to love our neighbor, getting them to the greatest need to know Jesus. Truly then, we will, be, we, we will give our culture, our dying culture, a hermeneutic of the gospel, not only with our words, but authenticating them with our lives. Let's pray.